2: From KQED.
4: It's the first week of January. Time for new resolutions. Renewing those gym memberships, maybe binge-watching Marie Kondo's new show? Just me? Oh, and losing weight. Diets always seem to make it to the top of New Year's resolution lists. But if that sounds like you, you might want to put that on hold. At least for the next half hour. Today on the California Report Magazine, we're gonna take a listen to some of the most appetizing stories from our Golden State Plate series, where we explore the backstory of some iconic food and drink born right here. Like green goddess salad dressing.
5: So herbaceous and wonderful, I love it. It's it's so
6: California. It It really is California.
4: And the sandwich that's French in name only.
6: You can get dry, single, double, wet. Meat on the side, the roll on the side, cut in half, cut it in thirds.
4: Plus, was the martini really born in Martinez? You know, a drink that's not like entered into the public record. I'm Susie Racho, in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. California is the birthplace of so many iconic dishes. Cioppino, Mai Tais, even the fortune cookie. This tasty history inspired us to launch Golden State Plate, a series about the origins of some of those classics. The California Report's Sasha Coca looks at one of her personal favorites Green Goddess Dressing.
7: Starting here at the historic Palace Hotel in downtown San Francisco.
8: Good. Welcome to the
7: Palace Hotel. Thank you. So now we're inside the garden court of the Palace Hotel, which is basically like a huge room under a giant skylight. It's got chandeliers hanging from the ceiling, ornate decorations on the walls, these pillars with golden swirls holding up the walls of the room. And this restaurant here was the birthplace of a pretty famous California recipe, Green Goddess Dressing.
9: That
7: so, the chef's name is Juan Rojas, and he's called eggs. the executive banquet chef of the Palace Hotel. We're in the kitchen, well. and he's throwing a whole lot of stuff into a blender. He's okay, got ice, he's got pasteurized oil. eggs, whole grain mustard, shallots, mustard. capers.
3: A lot of green.
7: And then there's also chives, chives, spinach, fresh tarragon, vinaigrette, chopped parsley, and pepper, some olive oil, and a little lemon juice.
10: That's
2: it. That's how you make your uh, green goddess vinaigrette.
7: So this recipe is really a far cry from the original one that they invented in this kitchen about 100 years ago. That one was heavy on the mayo and the sour cream and they served it on a canned artichoke, which was considered very luxurious in those days. Today, I'm having lunch with Renee Roberts. She's worked at this hotel for a long time, both in and out of the
5: kitchen. I mean, if you wear a green dress to work, everybody's calling you the green goddess. It's just kind of a thing around here.
7: <laughs> and Laura Borman, who's a food writer, her new book is called Iconic San Francisco Dishes, Drinks, and Desserts. So as you can imagine, she knows a lot about the history of California culinary inventions. It makes you feel sort of automatically connected to that history, I find. You know, my imagination runs wild when I have the the famous salad. And I think about all of the other people who've sat at these tables and done the same thing. This is a very fancy hotel. And back in the day, a lot of well-known and very wealthy people used to stay here, including an opera star named Luisa Tetrazzini. The hotel claims to have invented Turkey Tetrazzini, named after her. And Green Goddess Dressing was inspired by another famous guest, an actor named George Arliss. He was the lead actor in this 1920s play called The Green Goddess. And while he was staying at the Palace Hotel for a performance, they decided to throw a banquet for him. And our chef at the time, Philippe Romer, created the special dressing to be served on the starter salad. And the rest literally is history. I mean, the fact that we're still talking about this over a hundred years later is pretty impressive.
1: We can't ignore how
7: there's something really enchanting about the phrase, the green goddess. So the name green goddess from the movie actually comes from what? There was a goddess character? I think there was a green idol kind of thing, right? Yeah. That's
10: about as much as I know. It's a, it's a complicated storyline. <laughs>
7: Yeah, it's complicated. After the play finished, there were two film versions of The Green Goddess, and in them, this British white guy, George Arliss, starred as an Indian Maharaja.
3: Does your highness speak English? Oh, yes, a little.
7: All the other actors were white too, and they portrayed some Indians as savages. They had them like running around in Afros waving swords. <laughs> And the green goddess was basically a made-up deity in a bad hollywood version of a hindu temple this is what the famous california salad dressing is named after of a blow to me because I love this dressing and I grew up buying it at the health food store thinking about it like hippie salad dressing to like put on a salad with sunflower seeds and carrots. But my family's Hindu. My dad is from India. Sometimes digging into California food history isn't so savory, but Green Goddess, it's a California classic. Because of the things that make it so Californian, the fresh herbs, the obsession with Hollywood's celebrity. I'm still trying to work through the fact that something so seemingly innocent as salad dressing can carry baggage. But then our salads arrive, and I'm faced with this big mountain of fresh crab on a bed of shaved zucchini on one side of the plate, some greens on the other side of the plate, and this gravy boat full of electric green dressing.
0: This is your green goddess mm, dressing?
5: So-
7: you. Despite the problematic name, the dressing is really good. It's so clean and bright,
5: the flavors of all that herb, and it's so herbaceous and wonderful. I love it. It's, it's so California. It's it really so is. California.
4: And you don't need to spend $40 on a salad at the Palace Hotel to try Green Goddess Dressing. You can find it pretty much anywhere at any supermarket. Or make it yourself. We've got the recipe at californiareport.org. Can I do something for you, Mr. Boyner?
11: Uh Just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred.
4: The martini is one of those old-school drinks that come to mind when you hear the word cocktail, at least to me. It's iconic. From James Bond, the glass it's served in, to its own emoji. Its roots are in California, the Bay Area specifically. But as Bianca Taylor found out exactly where the cocktail was invented, how it got its name, even what it's made of, is where it gets muddled.
10: All right, I'm going to make a martini cocktail the way we do here at Bull Valley Roadhouse. And um, it's two parts of this old Tom gin, which is a sweeter gin. So I'll put two ounces of this chain in there.
2: I'm with bar manager Tamir Ben Shalom at the Bull Valley Roadhouse in this tiny East Bay town of Port
10: Costa. And then we'll do exactly half of that. One ounce of our Torino Vermouth blend.
2: What's the first cocktail you learned how to make?
10: It was the martini.
0: Really?
10: It was the martini.
2: Tamir makes a mean drink, but when I start asking him more and more questions about where the martini comes from, He tells me, I really just need to get in my car and drive 20 minutes down to Martinez. I'm standing on the corner of Masonic and Alhambra streets, and there's a plaque on a giant boulder in a parking lot, basically. And it says, birthplace of the martini. So not only does Martinez lay claim to the drink with a plaque, it throws an annual martini festival. And the drink's origin story is all over the city's official website. But Gabriel Close, a San Francisco bartender who collects and studies old cocktail recipes, he says there's actually a lot of controversy about where and who invented the martini.
10: These origins
5: are so murky. You know, a drink that's not, like, entered into the public
0: record.
2: According to the plaque, the Martina story goes like this. On this
0: site in 1874, a bartender served up the first martini, when a miner came into his saloon with a fistful of nuggets and asked for something special. He was served a Martinez special. After three or four drinks, however, the Z would get very much in the way. The drink consisted of two-thirds gin, one-third vermouth, a dash of orange bitters poured over crushed ice, and served with an olive.
2: But Gabriel tells me a really similar story. It also takes place in the 1870s, but this time it happens in San Francisco. It starts with a miner who comes into a bar at the Occidental Hotel with a sack of gold, and he wants to trade it in for a bottle of whiskey. So bartender Jerry Thomas gives him the whiskey and a special drink that he just made up off the cuff. He called it the Martinez. In 1887, the recipe for the Martinez was documented for the very first time in Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide. And his recipe looks a lot like the classic martini.
9: And here we've got the old tom gin and the vermouth. This is one part old tom to two parts vermouth.
2: Jennifer Callio is an award-winning bartender and a
9: self-proclaimed cocktail nerd. I like the martini because I love Um, I love all the stories, and I love that there's this air of mystery to it. H.L. Mencken called the martini the only American invention as perfect as the sonnet. She
2: loves martinis so much, she's made a spreadsheet that documents all of the martinis variations that she's found over the years.
9: Yeah, it's like 469 entries.
2: Some of the drinks are made with the exact same recipe, but they have different names.
9: We've got the Chris Racket Club, the Dewey, the Dry Martini, the Marguerite, and the Nutting.
2: All those are made with the same ingredients, one-to-one gin and dry vermouth
9: with orange bitters. So which one is the right one? There is nothing empirical here. There are people writing other people's recipes. There are people naming drinks after themselves or after the bars they work in. This explains why it's so hard to nail down the difference
2: between a Martinez and a Martini, let alone figure out where it was invented. But regardless of what it was called, it's very obvious that a martini-style gin
9: drink was really popular at the turn of the century. People always drank whatever they had around. And, you know, when America was being settled, there was a lot of gin here. And that wasn't an accident. Gin's popularity can be
2: traced back to prohibition. When the manufacturing and selling of alcohol became illegal in 1920, people got creative. Have you ever heard of bathtub gin? Well, that was literally people making gin in their bathtub. It was cheap and easy, and there was a lot of it. So when President Roosevelt repealed Prohibition 13 years later, there was plenty of gin around just waiting to be drunk.
10: The
3: decisive vote of the 36th state against Prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others throughout the land.
5: Roosevelt uh, cheers in the end of Prohibition with nothing but a martini. So that's a big deal right there. Prohibition really kind of gave the martini the leg up.
9: I mean, it is just like this granddaddy of cocktails. And this granddaddy
2: came from here, the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, it probably came from here. In 1983, the San Francisco Court of Historical Review, a group with no actual legal authority, they held a mock trial over the origin of the martini. And they determined that their city was the cocktail's rightful birthplace. But not to be outdone, a mock court in Martinez overturned that ruling shortly after. When I press Jennifer, Tamir, and Gabriel on where the martini was invented, no one is willing to say anything definitively. But finally, Jennifer
9: gives it to me straight.
2: So do you think it's important that people know where the martini came from? Oh god
9: no. No. No one no one needs to know any of this. I mean, if you're if you're enjoying yourself at my bar, that's really all that I care about. Cheers to
2: that. For The California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor.
4: And now we head to Los Angeles, where there are over 26,000 places to eat. One of those is a family-owned business that's been serving hungry Angelenos for over 100 years.
8: There are so few places in Los Angeles where you can get the same dish that your grandfather and your great-grandfather and your ancestors had at Philippe's. You can get that sandwich, and it's just, it's beautiful and simple and, and authentic and real and great.
4: Reporter Peter Gilstrap brings us the story of the French dip, a sandwich that's been a fixture of L.A. cuisine and beyond since the end of World War I.
3: Philips is on the corner of Alameda and Ord Street just down from Union Station on the southern edge of Chinatown here in Los Angeles. It's a blue collar area bordered by train tracks, the terminal annex post office building, and small shops in humble brick and mortar structures that go back to the 1920s. At night, the streets quiet down as a blanket of noir descends upon the scene, but in daylight hours things are bustling. People are working and the no frills French dip is a working person's lunch. A lot of the same people that are buying that sandwich
8: today are the types of people that would have bought it a century ago.
3: Chris Nichols is associate editor of Los Angeles Magazine. He's been writing about all manner of LA culture for over 20 years. You get city employees and workers, and I just appreciate that you see garbage men,
8: and you see people in suits, and you see um, just every walk of life coming in and out of that place, and and
3: enjoying the history and the authenticity and the, the realness of it. Step inside this cavernous former machine shop And it's like a time machine. It feels like an older Los Angeles. There's a bank of wooden phone booths, glowing neon clocks on the walls, sawdust covering the floors, and long communal tables where customers perch on stools, often eating next to strangers. There's no music in the place, just the easy ebb and flow of conversation. There are no waiters either. You line up at the deli counter, where a row of women in classic waitress uniforms wait to take and make your order.
8: First, I'll get two uh, beef dips, double dips. One with Swiss. You get a pickle, quarter. These
3: two French dips on this Monday morning will be among the 19,000 sandwiches served up this week alone. They've been doing this for a while.
11: We were open for 10 years until the French dip was actually created, and it was an accident.
3: That's fourth generation managing partner Andrew Binder, who says he literally grew up in the restaurant. In 1927, his great-grandfather bought the place from Hippolyte Philippe Matou who opened it in 1908.
11: Philippe was carving a sandwich, and the French roll fell into the pan drippings of some meats that were being roasted, and the customer was in a hurry. We used to think it was a policeman, but we were actually told by a relative of Philippe that it was a fireman. Um, That customer left, came back the next day with some friends, and requested the sandwich being dipped, so that really was the birth of the French dip.
6: My name is Gloria Camacho, and I've been here 25 years.
3: And what do you do here?
6: I'm a, considered a carver. We slice the bread, we slice the lamb, pickle.
3: Is it just women that are carvers?
6: Yes. <laughs> we like the guys in the back.
3: <laughs> why is that? I mean, you're better looking than the men.
6: Uh, you're funny. Uh, I don't really know why, but... It ain't broken, so let's not fix it.
3: (laughs) And for customers who aren't French dip veterans, Camacho reveals the different ways to dip your beef, your lamb, your pork, your ham, your turkey, or pastrami sandwich.
6: They ask us, what does it mean, uh, dip? It just means how much moisture you want on your roll. You can get dry, single, double, wet, meat on the side, the roll on the side, cut in half, cut it in thirds for here to go, so there's a couple of options.
3: Back in the kitchen, Andrew Binder stirs a steaming vat of meat. So what are we looking at here?
11: We are looking at a 50 gallon kettle that has a traditional stock. It starts with beef bones, we add vegetables and spices, and it's going for over 24 hours a day. And so it's an ongoing cycle. Then we'll drain it and strain it and combine it with all the drippings in the roasting pans, and that's what we dip your sandwich in the next day.
3: Back on the floor, the lines are growing as breakfast transitions into lunch. Eric Woods is in the queue, gazing at the cream pie and the cheesecake and the potato salad and the pickled pig's feet and other delights just under the deli counter glass as he inches slowly toward his carver. It's a weight he's used to.
8: I've been coming here since I've been like 10 years old, you know. I've been, I'm 53 now. I just like the atmosphere my grandpa used to bring me and I just like to sit in here and how it's just open and everybody can sit in a enjoy family atmosphere with no headache.
3: The tradition of Philippe's French dip is deep and vast, but they're not the only place in town claiming the sacred birthright. Coles, an upscale downtown .LA restaurant also opened since 1908, maintains the sandwich had its first odd Jews baptism in their kitchen.
8: I have started my own theory as to why Philippes might be the originator as opposed to Coles. Again, Chris Nichols. It's simply that Hippolyte Philippe Mathieu, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, was born in France, and Harry Cole was a German. So maybe that's why it's a French dip, because it came from a Frenchman.
3: It's not exactly a Beatles versus Stones rivalry, and really, what does it matter who came up with it first? One fact is certain, the sturdy, humble French dip is a proud creation of the City of Angels. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Los Angeles.
4: Before we go, we've got the perfect nightcap, an Irish coffee. Four parts coffee, a couple of sugar cubes, two parts whiskey, topped with heavy cream. And one of the most well-known places to get one is at the Buena Vista in San Francisco. This corner bar, located in front of a cable car turnaround, is often thought of as the birthplace of this iconic libation. But is it true? Our friends at the Bay Curious podcast, Kelly O'Mara and Olivia Allen Price, check it out.
9: We headed into the back room at the Buena Vista to learn how Irish coffee ended up here. It was not
5: originated in San Francisco. So my name is Leah, and I've been a waitress at the Buena Vista for
2: 14 years. That's right. The Buena Vista doesn't actually claim they invented the drink. But they do have a tale about how two San Franciscans made it popular in America. Leah sets the scene.
5: It was 1952. And it was a, a dark and stormy night, November 10th to be exact. And the owner of the Buena Vista at the time, his name was Jack Kepler, and he was behind the bar. And sitting at the bar was a fellow named Stanton Delaplaine. Stanton Delaplaine is very well known in the San Francisco Bay Area, he was a travel writer.
0: Well, look who it is Stanton Delaplaine. Deadline time at the Chronicle? Another day, another deadline. I've traveled far, old Jack. Pour me a martini, will you? Not one of them Irish drinks you keep writing about? Gaelic coffee? Ah, if only. No one makes them like the Irish. I could. I tell you. Just coffee, whiskey, and cream. Simple. No, no. I cannot speak any higher of the Irish coffee. The real trick is to make the cream float.
5: They tried it. They tried different glasses. They tried different whiskeys. They tried everything they could think of. The cream kept falling down to the bottom.
0: I don't know how many more of these I can drink, Jack. Never heard a newspaper man complain about too much drink. But this cream ain't right. Keeps sinking. What are we doing wrong? I guess you'll have to fly to that airport in Ireland. (laughs) Ask for the cook, Joe Sheridan. I just might.
5: Kepler got so obsessed with this, he actually flew to Ireland, met Joe Sheridan, who was the fellow who was not the bartender at Foynes at the time, but worked in the kitchen, and uh, asked him, how did he get his cream to float? What kind of whiskey did he use?
0: So first, you get a fresh, high-fat
5: cream. The type that Jack came back, he had perfected the Irish coffee. Stan Delaplane wrote about it in the newspaper. And all of a sudden, people were knocking on the Buena Vista door trying to get one of these authentic Irish coffees.
2: A great tale. But there is this Irish saying that goes, don't let the truth get in the way
10: of a good story. Irish coffee was invented Somewhere between 1940 and 1942, in Ireland, at either one of two places.
9: This is Eric Felton. He wrote a book on cocktails called How's Your Drink? He says there are two problems with the story of Irish coffee.
2: For one, he's not sure about the legend of Joe Sheridan inventing the drink
10: at the airport. It's possible that the drink was actually invented In 1940 or so at a pub called the Dolphin in in Dublin
1: but
9: Eric also isn't convinced our Stanton Delaplane was the first person to bring the drink to the US
10: the first instance that I can find of the Irish coffee coming to the US is a food critic for the New York Herald Tribune Clementine Paddleford and for her St Patrick's Day column in 1948 she talks up the Irish coffee and she gives the classic recipe. It's it's clearly the Irish coffee we know. But it is the case that it's in San Francisco that the Irish coffee really became a sensation, thanks to Stanton-Delaplane.
2: So even if Stanton-Delaplane wasn't the first to write about Irish coffees, the Buena Vista definitely popularized them in America. And that's why they still serve up to 2,000 of them every day.
4: Kelly O'Mara and Olivia Allen Price with the Bay Curious podcast. You can visit baycurious.org to subscribe. Next week on the California Report magazine, we go back a decade to New Year's Day 2009. That's when 22-year-old Oscar Grant was shot and killed at an Oakland BART station by a transit police officer. It wasn't the first or last time an unarmed black man would be killed by law enforcement, but it did galvanize a new generation of activists.
1: For us, right, for those of us who created Black Lives Matter, um it really does kind of start with Oscar Grant, right? Reporter
4: Sandia Dirks brings us the story of how a killing in Oakland led to a new fight for racial justice. That's next week on the California Report magazine. And that's it for this week. If you have a favorite food or drink with a California pedigree, let us know. We might feature it on our Golden State Plates series. Email us at calreport at kqed.org. We're already cooking up stories on ranch dressing, Pisco Punch, Santa Maria Tri-Tip, and Rocky Road ice cream. If you missed any of today's show, subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Bianca Taylor directed our show this week. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. We had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Victoria Malone is our senior editor. The stories in our Golden State Plate series are edited by me. David Marks is our online producer. The California Reports editorial team also includes Ethan Lindsay and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Racho. Sasha Coca returns next week. Cheers. This is the California Report magazine. Your state,
10: your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn
1: more at irvine.org. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and i